Major Lindsay in Africa presents Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. Hello and welcome to the March 3rd, 2022 episode of Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. I'm Mark Yakano, your host. I'm a managing director at Major Lindsay in Africa in its Transform Advisory Services practice. My guest today is Michael Kasdan. Michael is a extremely successful lawyer, a very passionate mental health warrior, and an advocate and voice on men's mental health issues across the country. A little bit about Michael. He is a well-respected partner in the intellectual property group at Wigan and Dana, and he's been recognized as one of the best IP lawyers in the country. He has also supported what's known as the Good Men Project for many years as a writer, an editor, special projects director, and has facilitated many discussions related to men's mental health issues and their intersection with traditional gender norms. Today, Michael and I are gonna dig into a topic that I have wanted to address for some time. And that's how traditional stereotypes around masculine behavior and masculine traits that impact men's mental health and the parallel of those gender norms with some of the traits in the legal profession that have contributed to our mental health crisis. Mike, I'd love for you to share a little bit about yourself and to correct any misstatements I may have made. Uh, no, I'll take all the very kind statements that you made and thanks for the introduction. I really appreciate you having me on and I appreciate that the, wor the work that you're doing here and the time that you're putting into pushing this conversation forward. I think it's really important. So uh, thanks for the introduction. Uh, just a little bit about myself. I think uh, in the legal field, I've done a little bit of everything. I've, I started my career as a law clerk. So I've been in the judicial system for a year. Uh, I've had some in-house experience. I lived abroad and, and was in-house at Panasonic for a couple of years. And then I've been uh, most of my career at law firms, you know, large and small. I started my career at Kirkland and Ellis in their New York office. Uh, I spent a good amount of time at a boutique IP practice called Amsterdam and Edmondstein. So it was a small IP focused practice, also in New York. Uh, and I've been at uh, at Wigan and Dana for the past uh, eight years or so. And that's the sort of medium sized practice, uh, still doing IP litigation and licensing. Um, and, you know, I've enjoyed that work. Um, and then, you know, in parallel to that, um, about for about the last 10 years, um, I've been involved with the Good Men Project. Uh, and I can tell you as we get into the conversation kind of how I got into that. But uh, to me, the most interesting part about, you know, right now uh, is, you know, I used to really compartmentalize and keep those parts of myself very separate. The conversations we were having at the Good Men Project were very different than the conversations I was having in law firms and in practice. And I really saw no reason, especially when I was a younger lawyer, to bring those things together. Um, but in the past couple of years, uh, I, I see them colliding in all sorts of areas, areas of diversity and inclusion uh, and areas uh, of mental health. And uh, so, so now I kind of feel like a complete person and those are kind of the two the two halves that are coming together uh to to really push me to be uh you know someone in the legal profession uh you know who cares about uh, mental health michael let's unpack this a little bit you've been very vocal of recent in the last couple of years about your own mental health crises and can you briefly share some of that with the audience and then we're going to tie it to some of the other things you just explained 
Sure. No, I'm happy to. Um, so I really, you know, as a young person growing up, um, I have to say, you know, it was a little bit of a different time too, but uh, and I really had no exposure to these mental health issues. I didn't ever really come across depression or anxiety, you know, or call it such or, or know of people I was interacting with that were suffering from those problems, although I'm sure people were. Um, but it was really not, nothing I had any personal experience with. Um, and, you know, I, uh, I, I experienced depression for the first time when I was, you know, 35 years old. So about 12 years ago. Um, and it really knocked me over the head because I really didn't know what was going on. I thought I was just really, really stressed out at work. Um, you know, what was really actually happening, uh, you know, as I've had time to kind of reflect on it is uh, I, I was going through a stressful period at work because work can be stressful. I was also going through a really stressful period in my home life. And, you know, both those things happening simultaneously kind of exceeded my threshold. Um, and, you know, I think depression manifests uh, differently in different people. Uh, and so for me, I have this periodic depression, but, you know, which, which can go, you know, many, many years without feeling anything and feeling great and, and being kind of my normal energetic self. Um, but, you know, when it comes, it can be very debilitating. And so that first time, you know, I, I was just kind of paralyzed at work. I would go to work and shut the door and, uh, you know, not be able to do anything. And um, so, to interject for a moment, when that sure. happened, you really weren't familiar with or acquainted with the mental health system, the signs of depression, or any of those types of issues that you're aware of now. When you know when that when when you first began to experience what was later diagnosed as clinical depression. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. So I had no idea what was going on, and I, I mean, I think I was really, really lucky uh, that I had a caring family support members like my brother and my sister and my parents, and you know. Uh, at law firms at that time, you know, nobody, nobody talked about depression or mental health. Um, so it was really, really lucky. Uh, you know, my sister came and got me at work and said, no, you're dealing with something much larger. You're not just stressed out. And she brought me to her therapist who became my therapist. And that was the first time I ever, you know, was in therapy. Um, and that I think, uh, you know, not to be hyperbolic, but I think that really saved my life. And in reality, had it not been for family members who were aware of how you behaved as opposed to how you behaved when you weren't depressed, you might not have been fortunate enough to have gotten directed in the right place. Yeah, I, th I think that's true. And that really, you know, that made its mark on me. And, you know, in the, when I, when I suffered that first depression and, you know, began you know, talking to therapists and, you know, that whole process was so foreign and, you know, now to be able to normalize that for my kids and for, for others is really amazing. But, you know, just to sort of continue on the journey a little bit, because, um, you know, you, were, you talked about how vocal I've been about my own struggles and it wasn't always that way. Um, and, and in fact, that's how my story kind of intersected with the Goodman Project for the first time, because um, in 2013, I had probably my worst episode of depression. Um, and after being in a really, really, really dark place, um, I just wrote about it um, just really for myself uh, as, as a kind of therapeutic thing. And I shared it with just a few close friends and some family members. And one of one of my friends, uh, a couple people really said, hey, you know, you really should publish this. You should write about this because it's important for people to talk about these things. And it's particularly important for men to talk about these things because there's that stigma of it seeming weak. 
Um, and so uh, at that time I was, I was terrified. I was scared to talk about it. Um, I didn't want to, the thought of attaching my name to an article talking about that uh, was really impossible. It was impossible to, to think about because what would my clients say? What would my colleagues say? Um, and so uh, that's kind of how I found the Good Men Project. A friend of mine introduced me to a writer there and he uh, published my article anonymously. And so I began writing about this stuff anonymously. And over the past you know, 10 years, I went from writing about it anonymously to writing about it in my own name, but not talking about it at work and to this kind of place where I'm at now, which is, you know, I'm going to go on LinkedIn and talk about it and I'm going to post articles about it and I'm going to talk to people at work about it. But it was a long, uh, a long time to get to that point. But, but I think what helped to get me to that point was the more people, I never had a bad conversation about it. I never had a negative experience. I never talked about it with someone and had them say, oh, I don't want to work with you or you're weak. It always, always, always opened up conversations um, with with people saying, oh, you know, that's happened to someone I know or that's happened to me or I get it. Um, you know, I remember the first time I talked about it with someone in the law. It was like maybe five or six months after that first episode. And I was with a few colleagues of mine that I used to work with at Kirkland and Ellis. They were both kind of my mentors. Right. I was a young, young associate there and they were the folks I was I had learned from. And I and I, I uh we had all moved on and we had breakfast. And I said, you know, I'm gonna tell these guys what happened. And I described it to them like I was disclosing this big secret thing that only happened to me. Um, and, they, and they were both about four or five years older than me. They'd been in big law for a while and they both kind of laughed at me and said, oh yeah, yeah, that's depression. You know, that happens to me. <laughs> you know, that, that's happened to me a whole bunch of times. And I was kind of stunned, you know, I was like, well, why, <laughs> why am I finding out about this now? So, you know, the more I talked about it, um, the more, you know, I felt it like helped me and others. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of what's carried me to, to, you know, the way I treat the conversation today. Well, and I think there's a couple of things that we can extract from that, which is you're not the first person, nor will you be the last person, male or female, to think if they admit that they're struggling with their mental health, it'll hurt their um, standing at work. You're not the first lawyer, nor will you be the last to think that clients might not hire you if they know you struggle with mental health issues. But in reality, today, you have a, you have a good practice, good clients, you're nationally recognized, and you're very open. So, you know, from my perspective, not only have you shown courage, but you've also shown that there is a pathway where people will take you as you are and judge you for, for who you are and what you do as opposed to um, discard you or, or not believe in you because you have struggles that most of humanity has struggles with, frankly, these days. Yeah, no, certainly. And, and look, in this time, especially at this time now, I think one of the silver, silver linings of, of COVID, you know, if we can find some, is, you know, people realizing that things are hard for, for everyone and that everyone struggles. And, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that, you know, I, I like what I do and, uh, and I put a lot of energy into it. Um, and, you know, everyone's got something that they're dealing with. And I think, you know, whether we talk about mental health and we, and we talk and we focus on sort of the, the mental illness side of mental health, like depression and anxiety or PTSD, uh, you know, those, those sorts of things, you know, or we, you know, I also think about mental health in sort of as a continuum um, where, you know, we're all in a certain place on that continuum every day. And, 
you know, jobs are stressful, life is hard, you know, life can be very beautiful and it can also be very hard. And it's this weird mashup. Um, you know, I, I said that to my daughter recently as a, as a sort of fatherly advice. Um, and, you know, as a teenager, like she, she was like, yeah, <laughs> like that resonates. And, and I think, I, I think that, you know, being able to talk about, you know, have this conversation be open, you know, my experience is that, you know, it's much better than feeling alone, you know, or hiding. And, and I really think that part of what got me here, I mean, look, it's a lot easier for me to be a senior person now in my mid forties than it is for someone in law school or, or you know, coming to the practice or a young associate. Uh, I think it's, it's so much, so much harder for them to, to be open just because, you know, it is, unusual and there is a cultural stigma um but i think you know over time just i think being at the goodman project um and, and talking about all these kind of issues of culture change whether it's um you know being anti-racist or you know dealing with misogyny um I, I think that there are dots that connect kind of all these issues and you know the, the topic of masculinity or um or, or you know a narrow view of, of masculinity like that, that 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 is part of the subject of what we're talking about today I think there are a lot of dots that connect across all, all these complicated issues. So I think, you know, on the side that was, I was kind of learning about those issues and learning a little bit about the world and, and then just trying to apply it to my own life and my own, you know, in, in my own industry. I think that it's been difficult or it is difficult depending on how and where you grew up and your level of awareness for people to understand that there was a time when, you know, admitting that gender and sexuality are fluid things, admitting that, you know, traditional stereotypes of what meant to be masculine um, weren't consistent with every male's DNA. And it was, you know, inconsistent that one could be authentic unless they met that that stereotype and the irony is is that many men were inauthentic because they were trying to live up to a, a stereotype and as a result you know let's let's look at the state of men's mental health even today one yeah. thing where render men have a significant advantage over women and is the efficacy in which they kill themselves men account for almost 70 percent of the deaths by suicide and have the highest percentage of successful attempts. Um, they're less likely to get treatment. I think one in four women will seek treatment for depression in their lifetime, and only one in 10 men will do the same. And then we know that men present differently in the clinical and social, um, social awareness of when a man might be in depression or suffering is different because they don't present in the same way women do. Often it shows up in anger, reckless behavior, physical um, aggression. And it's often attributed to other things like substance or alcohol abuse, not necessarily thought to have an underlying mental health cause. So the state of men's mental health, even today, even with heightened awareness, is still pretty dire in my view. I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you, you know, unfortunately, and, and that's kind of what I was getting at it, sort of the dots connecting all these issues. Um, and I think it really comes down to the kind of the core DNA of the conversation we're trying to have and push forward at the Goodman Project. Because um, I see that, you know, the, so Goodman Project, um, I see it as kind of this big tent masculinity, this kind of uh, 
diverse and inclusive vision of masculinity, whereas, you know, traditional masculinity, some folks will refer to that as toxic masculinity. Some people don't like that term. They think that's a label that you're saying all men are toxic, which, you know, I don't really see it that way, but whether you call it the patriarchy or toxic masculinity or dominance-based masculinity, but that, you know, the narrow kind of traditional view in our society of what a man is, you know, if you go to a, a, a eighth grade class and say, and, and get a bunch of boys and say, what does it mean to be a man? Uh, or you go to a high school or a college or, or a room full of men our age, like the answers that you usually are, usually get are strong, tough, independent, decisive, um, uh, unemotional, um, always win, like to drink and party, always get the girl. Um, but there are lots of men that fall outside of that narrow box, and that causes a lot of harm. Um, so, you know, there, to me, you can be manly and be a poet, and you can be manly and you can be a football player, or you can be manly and be, you know, Einstein and be a, a, a scientist and someone who has no athletic skills. I think there, should, there has to be room for all of that within our, our broad view of masculinity. But, you know, what happens is, you know, in our society, and it's, it's reinforced by pop culture um, in many ways, although I think there's some, some recent good things happening in pop culture. But, you know, we very, very soon we're kind of socialized as men and boys to, you know, not hug other men because that's, you know, girly or and, and you know, that it harms men. <laughs> uh, and it also, you know, harms men, harms women. I think it's, it's, a, it's you know, where a lot of sort of misogyny and homophobia comes from. Um, but, you know, I think in the, in the, in the mental health space, um, and, and that's really why when, when I led a men's mental, mental health group at the Good Men Project, we came up with a hashtag for this campaign that we did. We, and it was hashtag not weak, just human um, to try and encourage people to share their stories and to show people that all sorts of people have all sorts of different men, mental health issues. Um, it's just the way we are, we're diverse, that's just humanity. Um, and so I, th I think a lot of men based on that very rigid view of, of gender roles, which is, you know, it's a societal construct, but it's very, very powerful. Um, they're gonna try and tough it out, right? And, and so, you know, we, when I spoke and said that, you know, I got into therapy and that saved my life, you know, it did, but if, you know, my sister hadn't pushed me, you know, my inclination even with all the good men project stuff I was doing, um, my inflation was, you know, just suck it up, tough it out, man up. Um, and men aren't great about talking about their feelings and sharing this kind of stuff with other men, right? We get right. together with other men and we're drinking beer and watching football and having kind of surface level conversations in a lot of ways. You know, you need people that you can really deeply connect with and share this tough stuff. Um, yes. So I think all of that, yeah, all that sort of combines to, uh, to kind of cause this, uh, I think the numbers that you were referring to where it's more deaths and more dire circumstances on the mental health side. Yeah, and I think it's important to know for the listeners that there is more than a significant amount of data and study out there that shows that around 13 or 14 is when boys begin to make the shift from being sort of that carefree, open, um, accepting type of child to feeling like they have to start to conform to a stereotype, either as part of organized sports or parental expectations or peer expectations. But there definitely is a turning point where traditional norms of um, 
or definitions of what it means to be fully masculine change the arc of a, a boy's development and basically start to turn off certain emotional channels and, and, and the ability to connect in the same way that they could even two years earlier, you know, pre-puberty. Yeah, that's, that's a great point and it's true. And I, and I, I mean, there are also studies uh, that show that happening at a much, much younger age. Like if you read folks like Niobe Way or, or others uh, that show that that, that happening, <laughs> like the imposition of those societal constructs happening much, 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 much younger. Um, but but yeah, that's exactly right. And so that, you know, those emotional, and, and I think the interesting thing about it and thinking about masculinity and modern masculinity, and it's a point that one of my friends at the Goodman Project made, and I, I think it's a good one, is that, you know, as we get older, <laughs> Um, you know, and also in this modern time, like we don't have to go club our food and kill it. Like we can go to the, you know, Whole Foods and buy our food or we can go to the, or we can go to Trader Joe's or, or ShopRite. Um, so, you know, there's nothing about our survival that, that, that requires us to dominate everything. And, you know, as we get older, um, we're not going to be able to win. We're going to age. We're going to get less strong. Uh, we're not always going to be able to get the girl. We're not going to be able to drink as much. And so, you know, when, when you start this socialization so young, um, and and you underdevelop uh, or understress or push in the other direction away from collaboration and emotion and um, and those types of you know what are viewed as like soft or feminine qualities, but I don't think they are. Um, when you push away from that, um, and then you're left with a situation where there really is harm to men. And you know we talk about the patriarchy and how it hurts women, and and you know we talk about the feminist movement, and and that's all correct. But what's what's harder to get men to see? Uh, is that it's also harming men, you know, on the mental health front, on the loneliness front, men die younger. Um, so all those issues, I think we'd be better served in kind of all these places um, to have this sort of broader view of what it means to be, uh, you know, a man. So that there's room for everyone and you're not experiencing that harm of, of being excluded if you're different because we're all different. Personally, I don't see how you could want to age as a man without a multi-step skincare process to keep your face youthful and moist um, and unlined. Um, so the whole notion of, of suffering alone and, and roughing it through life is an anathema to me. I can't imagine, I can't imagine going through life like that. But I think you made a really good point was these, what I call unconstructive expectations around masculinity aren't just harmful to women, people of diversity, people in the LBGTQI community, but they're harmful to men themselves. Yeah. I, carry, yeah. I call it carrying the armor. The, and it, it, it's really sort of like, you know, what happens to the spine when it takes years and years and years of pressure and pounding, walking on concrete floors. Eventually carrying that armor is debilitating. Yeah. And look, everyone, you know, and it's not to say that, uh, you know, there are certain issues that I think are more particular to men and others more particular to, to women. And, you know, one that I forgot to mention, another one of these sort of carrying the armor uh, harms is the expectation of always, you know, being the earner and out there making the most money and winning the most. And I think, you know, that, that, that you know, intersects with, you know, getting, you know, a tough job and, and beating everyone. And that sort of intersects with law firm culture, um, you know, which we can talk about later. But, uh, but oh, yeah, all those issues. Um, I think carrying the armor is is a good way of of putting it. Yeah, and so let's talk about carrying the armor and how that 
that notion of silent stoicism, the drive for perfection, um, the refusal to admit the need for help, how those types of things carry over into some environmental factors we see in the legal profession that have, that have contributed to the mental health crisis that we have right Sure. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I've recently, like only recently kind of connected the dots in my own head. Um, and I, I did a Twitter thread about it and then turned it into a little article uh, that drew these parallels between this traditional gender norm of, of narrowly prescribed dominance-based masculinity um, and kind of like law firm culture. And it's not saying, you know, all law firms are ter terrible places to work and, you know, it's, they're not, that's not been my experience, but there are a lot of parallels um, and, you know, it, it, it's interesting. And so some of the parallels that, that I see, um, and, and I think, you know, part of it is just the job of being a lawyer, particularly a litigator, uh, right? There are assumptions that you have to be tough, that you have to win, that, you, you know, that you're a hired mercenary, um, that you dominate. Um, that they have to be decisive, um, you know, and instead of collaborative, like make a decision, go, win. Um, so all of those, um, and, you know, and, and I think all you have to do is look at kind of the, the funny, but not so funny, like associate memes out there about being overworked and overstressed and having poor mental health. And it's interesting to me because people complain about it, um, but they also sort of carry it as a badge. Right. It's a very like American thing. Like, how are you doing? Oh, I'm so busy. I've got I'm doing so many things. Um, and people see that as like a positive thing. They kind of wear it proudly. Um, and, and so uh, to me, there are a lot of these parallels that, that I see um, that, that, you know, law firm culture. And, and I think a lot of them are actually wrong. Um, I was in a conversation the other day uh, where, where uh, a, a woman was expressing uh, you know, discomfort at a certain conversation that a man had because of a comment he made that I thought was inappropriate. And someone came on and commented, you got you know, you're a lawyer, you have to have a thicker skin. Uh, you know, we're soldiers. Um, and, you know, my response to that was, no, we're not. I'm not a soldier. You're not a soldier. Um, you know, we're, we're creative problem solvers. And a lot of times, you know, in, in, in practice, you know, winning, getting the business result doesn't mean clubbing someone over the head. It means having a good relationship with them, being able to negotiate something, knowing when to fight and when not to, you know, collaborating on certain things. So again, I, I kind of see now that I've had some time to reflect on a law career and, and, and practiced in a bunch of different settings, I do see a lot of these parallels with the issues, you know, that I've, that I've been talking about over at the Goodman Project and the issues that I see in law firms. And, and I do see these issues kind of intersecting with, particularly with diversity and inclusion and with mental health. And, and let's explore that. How do they intersect in your mind? Um, so, you know, on the, on, on the mental health side, it's, it's these gotta be perfect, gotta dominate, can't ask for help, have to win, um, can never take time off, you know, don't, you know, and, and the push, 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 go, go, go. Um, you know, ends up being harmful. And, 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 I, and I mean that not only talking about you could have, you know, you could enter into clinical depression or be so anxious. Um, and that's a real thing, right? The, the statistics in the legal field on actually mental illnesses are, are astronomically high, right? Like one in three self-reporting uh, incidents of depression. That's like you in a room and then your neighbors to the left and right. One of you, one of the three of you is 
suffering from depression, and that's based on self-reporting, so it's probably higher. Um, so incidences of you know abuse of you know your drug and alcohol abuse and, and all those. So those are very high, but it, it's only part of the picture because I think when you talk about mental health, you also have to talk about just you know positive mental health. You know positive mental health. If you look at um, like the World Health Organization, they don't define that as like the absence of mental illness. Right, positive mental health is having living a fulfilling, balanced life, like being happy, um, being in part, and and your job is part of that, right? Being successful in your career, feeling like you matter, like your work has impact, like you have value, you know, all those things. And so I think when when you drive too hard in this sort of narrow view that you have to be, a, you have to have be tough, and you have to dominate, and you have to have thick skin, and you know, balances for balances for wimps. I'm just going to beat you. Um, I think you lose um, a lot of the really, really important aspects of being uh, being a good lawyer being and living a life well lived. I think you, you make some good points. I do think that those expectations of lawyers are not, uh, to be fair, expectations just of male lawyers. It's expectations, That's absolutely right. It's expectations of the profession and it just so happens that unfortunately, they very closely mirror um, expectations that result from unconstructive um, notions of masculinity. It, it, yeah. it's, actually, it's actually very stunning how, how the traits that were identified in the Hazelden study that make mm -hmm. the profession so dangerous overlay with um, the characteristics of, you know, toxic or, or unconstructive, uh, you know, masculinity traits. So, um, yeah, no, that's, a, that's an important point that, you know, it, it's definitely not only men that are bearing the brunt of this, um, but I'll push back a little bit on like that. It just so happens to line up. I don't know that it's an accident because, you know, if you think about the folks that first, you know, started law firms, uh, you know, they were white males um, and, you know, women entering the, the, the you know, the, the field and, and, you know, and other folks entering the field is, you know, if we're looking, taking a broad view of history is kind of like more recent. So I don't think it's so unusual that some of those uh, like constructs are kind of imprinted onto the law. No, I, I, I do think that's a fair point. And um, the, I, I just really want the listeners to, to realize that we recognize that those expectations of lawyers that mimic um, characteristics of toxic masculinity are expectations of anyone who enters the profession, especially today, regardless, uh, regardless of whether they're a male, female, or their orientation, gender, that are being paid the amounts of money that, that attorneys are being paid. Those expectations are um, sort of global and universal. What's not is the resources and the training and the social um, social frameworks to support different constituencies within the league. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great point, and it's a really important point. And and, and if I could just take it a step further, you know, these th this issue it's not unique to law, and neither is kind of the pushback that I think a lot of people would say. You know, so a lot of people would say, well, you know, you work you're working for a big law firm. You know, you knew what you're getting into and, you know, you're getting paid a lot of money. So, you know, it's okay. Suck it up. 
Um, and, and to me, that, that actually parallels a lot of the conversations that we're seeing um, now on a very big platform in, you know, with elite athletes. Um, and I'm not saying I'm anywhere close to an elite athlete or that lawyers, you know, are, are compared to world-class athletes. Um, but I think it's interesting that, you know, in the last year, we've seen Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka really lead the way uh, on mental health of athletes. And a lot of the pushback that you hear are people raising those same types of issues like, you know, well, they get paid a lot of money and if they can't hack it, maybe they just should do something else. And, you know, what, what I think about when I, when I hear that um, is, you know, a similar critique that, you know, when I talk to even, you know, people close to me and I say, you know, I think we can improve law firm culture you get the same pushback, which is, well, you know, people made a deal, like everyone knows what they're getting into and it kind of works. And, you know, I guess the way I see that is that if, if you're pushing out people who are good uh, from, this, from this job and it's costly, um, you know, are we really doing this right? And so I, I think there's a lot of room for improvement um, but I understand that, you know, for, for men, women, and people of all, all orientations and ethnicities, you know, the, the issue of, of the culture is, is, is it's, it's hard to deal with and one that needs some changing. And I think, you know, the, the, this notion out there, and it did happen with um, Simone Biles and, and, um, and um, Naomi, Naomi Osaka. Osaka. Was that there was a there 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 was necessarily a bargain, which is if you accept the benefits of being an elite athlete, including accolades and in 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 money, you give up the right to thrive as a person if if that's exactly. the cost. And exactly. that's the same argument people make um, with lawyers who are who, who are highly compensated and. I think that really is one of the most tragic, tragic um, preconceptions that people have and, 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 and assumptions that have been built into our, our, what I would call our spectrum of tolerance is that just because you're well compensated, um, you should give up your rights to, to deal with and address things that are gonna keep you on earth for a very long time and happy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, it's very well said. I, I agree. And I think that, you know, the reason that I've been fascinated by, you know, men's mental health issues for so long, you know, not, you know, just, not just because of my own, you know, um, efforts with mental health over the years, my own mental health issues is the idea that, you know, should be recognized as a strong, vibrant male, we had to adhere to behavioral norms that are inherently unconstructive. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's true. And, and you know, and part of, part of the, the difficulty in culture change and in having this very conversation, um, you, you notice it, uh, or at least I notice it, when you even start to have a conversation, a lot of people push back. Um, but, you know, the, 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 the difficulty, um, it, you know, it's hard to have the conversation to change the culture, but, you know, part of what's true in, you know, the man box and also true I see in, in any sort of institutional culture is, you know, it's kind of like self-enforcing, like someone steps out of line, uh, you know, if we're talking about like masculinity um, and they say, oh, like, you know, you're like a girl or, or you know, or, 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 or use a, a gay slur, right? And, this, and then, you know, at that age, you're a teenager, you kind of 
come back into say, okay, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to be, you know, perform masculinity the right way, the traditional way. Um, and I think it's kind of, you know, it's the same thing in, in, in any sort of culture that you're talking about, but, you know, in law firm culture, um, you know, it becomes sort of this self-reinforcing thing. People build it into their identities. Um, you know, going back to what I said about people, you know, being busy as a, as a you know, you know, it's, it's like a badge of honor, right? Like, oh, like I build 3000 hours and, um, you know, I'm not sure that you can be an effective human or lawyer, um, you know, if, if you actually do the math at what that means in terms of the hours that you're spending. So, you know, it, it's to me, it's all about culture. People think culture change is this sort of fuzzy thing. And certainly we can talk about, you know, concrete things. But but I, but I think this putting your finger on this this cultural issue, which is which starts when we're educated, like so, so young um, and runs through our whole lives if we're not aware and speaking to that, then all the little steps are probably not going to be powerful enough to, to make a big change. Yeah. And I think that if you kind of look at it this way, I made a, uh, not a joke, but a feeble attempt at humor talking about my skincare regimen, but in reality, who the hell wants to get skin cancer and who the heck wants to look like the Marlboro man? It's not pretty, right? Well, yeah. if you're practicing law at a big firm, Maybe you're making a lot of money and doing great work, but do you really want to be gray, um, you know, in skin tone? Do you really want to have, you know, your blood work come back from your annual physical looking terrible? Do you want to be constantly, you know, nervous to the point where your nails are fraying or you're twitching or you just find no peace? I think that, you know, this, this, perpetuation of this myth of strength, these false definitions of strength are that we see it now. Lawyers um, in certain demographics are leaving the profession. They're saying no to, you know, working and living like that. But to me, it all comes back to with if you're trying to meet a stereotype that was never sustainable or valid in the first place, um, you're going to be destined to suffer in some way, or your client, or your family, or, or 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 the community around you is going to be destined to suffer. Yeah, it's it's your own suffering. It's that trickle down effect, and and it, and it's true. And I do think that we have the power to change it. And I don't think changing it is going to make us make less money or make us be less successful at lawyers as lawyers. Um, but you know, if, you know, for example, you know, I. Um, when, if I'm working with an associate, based on my own experience, um, you know, as a young lawyer, and and you know, I um, I left Kirkland shortly after my daughter was born because um, I was expected to work on a Saturday after my wife gave birth on a Friday, and men didn't take family leave, right? Um, and so, so right now, when someone in my firm says they're taking family leave, um, I say I say out loud in an email, "That's great. I'm glad you're doing that." as a man, I think that's really important. And, you know, when I have associates working for me and I say, hey, because there are situations like, you know, we had deadlines and sometimes you do have to work really hard. Um, and, you know, we're, we're smart, we can balance things. Um, I'd rather have an associate, you know, be straight and honest with me than just say, we'll do. And, you know, spend the next 10 hours missing their family thing to do, to give me this thing that I might not even look at until the next day. I'd rather have a relationship where I can have the conversation of saying, look, we have this deadline in two days. And them saying, you know, I have this family thing tonight, but if I work on it, you know, tomorrow, I can get it to you by such and such a date. When are you going to look at it? I think it just takes more um, 
communication um, and just more like relationship building rather than the expectation that, you know, as someone put it, it's more like the sort of fraternity model where, you know, someone made my life a living hell when I was an associate and now I'm a partner and I get to do that. I just don't think that's a good model for anyone. I think the takeaway from today's discussion, which could go on for an inordinate period of time, is that it's incumbent upon us as humans and it's incumbent upon uh, men who have had the opportunity to see what constructive, uh, constructive role models look like to foster conversation with their peers, to help create you know, a new, a new sort of openness that, you know, it, it, there's no broad systemic remapping of the uh, traditional stereotypes that, that we all fight with, but individually as people, we have a chance to, you know, adjust our own behavior and we have a chance to recalibrate the dialogue. And that's, you know, going to be a critical part of how we, we move forward in a healthy way both within the legal profession and both within the, you know, the evolution of men in the 21st century as they try to, you know, stay both relevant and healthy and, um, you know, meaningful contributors to their communities. Yeah, and I think, I, I, uh, you know, it's an individual thing and, and it's also an organizational thing. And I think a lot of this really comes down to, to leadership. I think, you know, a lot of, uh, I think a lot of this conversation, being able to lead in this way, I think really defines modern leadership. And I think sometimes when you get pushback from someone saying, oh, you know, mental health, it's that yoga and mindfulness and it's not for me, or, you know, oh, like diversity inclusion, like that's not really my thing because, you know, I'm a white male and, I, you know, I don't really have a lot of experience dealing with that. Um, but I think the way to open it up is, is this is really important for leadership and growth. It's, a, it's your own development and the development of the firm around you. We're going to be better and stronger, like both at work and at home. I don't think it's a trade-off between the two where if you're healthier outside, it means you're less productive at work. I think it's more, they both kind of go together. Um, you know, when you're not feeling well, you're not going to be doing good work. And when you're feeling good and supported and, and uh, satisfied and, and you have good relationships, you're going to do better work. Um, so I think I think those things rise and fall together. Well, Michael, thank you so much for being my guest and for engaging in this this dialogue. Um, I know we covered a lot of ground and it wasn't particularly orderly, but I think that's partially because understanding the expectations on men in today's society, understanding unrealistic expectations of what it means to be a good lawyer, all of that stuff is inherently messy. And, you know, if we can raise awareness that those expectations are, are, aren't healthy, and if we can begin to engage in dialogue, which doesn't stigmatize people by labeling them as either conforming or non-conforming to those, to those, um, norms, you know, maybe we make progress a little bit at a time. Yeah, I appreciate the conversation. I thought it was plenty orderly. And, and I just also want to let folks know that if anyone wants to have these conversations or continue the conversation, I'm always happy to have it and I'm easy to find online or in the real world. Yeah, so Michael, I always tell my guests, tell, tell our guests, tell my guests, tell our listeners how you can be found in social. 
Uh, sure. So, uh, so yeah, Mike Kasdan, you can find me on LinkedIn, of course, like, uh, like everyone. Um, and I'm at Wigan and Dana, so you can read my lawyer bio over at Wigan and Dana. You can read my Good Men Project bio over at the Good Men Project. And then uh, I've recently started some social accounts um, just to focus on this mental health in the law venture, which I'm calling Lawyering While Human. Um, so if you're a Twitter person, it's uh, law underscore while underscore human is the account. Um, and I'm also uh, online at Instagram, which I started just to follow my children, but now I'm actually on Instagram for real. Um, and the, uh, the Lawyering While Human account over there is my old fantasy baseball team name, which is zen.mayhem. I'm trying to marry those two things together. So that's my Instagram handle, at zen.mayhem. Very good. Thank you so much. This has been Erasing the Stigma, Conversations about Mental Health in the Legal Profession. I'm Mark Yakino, your host, and my guest today has been Michael Kasdan. Thank you for listening, and Michael, thank you for contributing. Thanks so much, Mark. Discover how Major Lindsay in Africa can help you navigate the legal landscape at www.mlaglobal.com.